Welcome to the Tightly Coupled Book Club. I'm Aji, joined by special guest host Mercedes Bernard. Mercedes' first programming language was Java, and she can never quite make up her mind about front or back end. When she's not working, she's a prodigious crafter. Pottery, embroidery, printing. In fact, I have a couple of pieces of original Mercedes Bernard pottery on the shelf above my desk here. (laughs) Thanks for coming on the show and agreeing to take on this mighty section with me. Thanks so much for having me. I was actually really excited about the query interface section because we use it every day. So your first Rails version was 5.0.2. I looked up that point release included the change that Rails.env would default to development if the associated environment variables were empty strings. But more excitingly, Rails 5 saw many new features in our framework of choice, including API mode. And on a personal note, it was debuted at my very first RailsConf in Kansas City. And for this episode, we read Active Record Query Interface in the Ruby on Rails Guides, version 7.0.6. So Mercedes, did you learn anything that surprised you? I did. They had this whole section about negative conditions where it's unscope, rewear. I've heard of unscope, but I've never heard of the other five or six that was in that list. And then I read them and I got to the end and I was like, when would you ever need these? I don't understand. So yeah, that kind of blew my mind. Me too. That is a whole section that I just don't have a lot of connection to. I, like you've heard of Unscoped, don't think I've used it. The list of these negative conditions just kept going on and on. And for the life of me, I can't come up with a use case. The only thing I could think of is if you inherited a legacy code base where they had coded you into a corner, because that's kind of when you use unscoped, right? When somebody got a little bit too excited about scopes and default scopes and Mm. put them everywhere. And so reading about reware and and reselect and all these things, all I could think of was maybe somebody started passing relations around as method params and got you, the new present day programmer, into the situation where you're seven levels deep and you just have this relation and they had selected a column out of it and you're like, but that's the column I need now. And that was the only thing I could think of is it's to help you years after in an old code. It wasn't until I had moved on to the next section when I realized that, oh, these are useful for when you've already got a collection, you've been passed or handed, and you need to modify that slightly. Because all of the examples are just one-liners, like books.scope this.unscope, the same thing. And it's like, this doesn't make any sense the way that it's displayed in the examples. As of maybe a few years ago, I've started being really hardcore about always keep things relations. Wait until the last possible minute to execute the query and load it into memory. And I think since doing that, I have seen more use cases for some of these obscure methods and helpers that exist. Because keeping a relation means that you are holding in memory like the SQL you want to execute at some point and not actually doing it. But then once you execute it, you have the array. Working with relations for years has made it a little bit easier to understand some of these things. 
I know that one of the thoughts that I had going through is when it got to this section about method chaining, that idea of working with relations, whether it's in one small section or like you're saying, having them all around and operating on those until the last minute that I don't know what else you could say about it in the guides, but I was pretty surprised by how short a section it was because method chaining feels like such a killer feature of this query interface. Apart from just saying it at the end of every section, you should chain these methods. You should chain these methods. I don't know how you could really get across how powerful it really is until somebody's had a chance to use it. It's really clear that all the folks involved in making Active Record put a lot of thought into how to make it as flexible and extensible as possible for us. I don't think I spend enough time really thinking about how easy Active Record makes my life until I read a guide like this. The thing that doesn't really get touched on in the guides at all is the underlying system that does all of that, ARail. Just thinking about the problem space of like, okay, make this almost natural language way to query things out of a database and turn them into Ruby objects. Go. I'm in awe of the work that created this incredible query interface. That actually brings up a point that I thought of within the first 10 minutes that I started reading is that they never call it an ORM or an object relational mapping tool. And that's what it is. ORMs exist for a lot of different languages. And there's a part of me that was like, please give people the vocabulary because it is a query interface that is a nice way to describe it. But there are a lot of folks that I've worked with that are new to Rails or new to programming. And giving that vocabulary makes it easier when then you go read other things or you want to learn a new language because you can go, oh, it's like Active Record, but for Python, because you start seeing ORM sprinkled everywhere. But I looked and nowhere in the guide did it give you the name for what a query interface is. And I thought that was really interesting. Well, I can happily tell you then that they do call it an ORM, just not in the individual pages about features of Active Record. Oh, good. Well, that makes me feel so much better because I was reading it. And I was like, wait a minute, did I miss it? So that's awesome. I did still expect that in there, even after having read the last few pages and realizing that I don't think they refer to it that way at all, except for that first basics page. Yeah. Mentioning the first 10 minutes or so of reading through something that tripped me up was originally I had read through and saw all of the relationships and associations and scopes defined on the models in this first section here. And it says code examples throughout this guide will refer to one or more of the following models. But I had missed that line. So my first <laughs> read through, I was thinking in the back of my head the whole time, that was a lot of code without context. Why was that there? When is that going to come back? <laughs> of course, it was just right in front of my face. I really appreciated that they did that. I was surprised how extensive that upfront list of classes diagrams was because there were things in it where I was, oh my goodness, okay, we've got reviews over here and we've got the customer here and all of this. And and I see now why they did it, because this guide was a lot longer than I was expecting. So they used all of it. 
but I guess I would have expected your typical, the book has an author, and then you read, here's how you find a record, blah, 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 and then customers want to leave reviews, and it would have organically added all of the things so that they were closer to the concept that used them. After I realized what was going on there with those, I went back and looked at the last couple of pages. The examples in those are a little bit more like you described, that it will add on the concept as it's going along or completely switch tracks of what model it's using as examples from orders and subscribers and customers to books and authors in between small point sections. I wonder if those other sections might benefit from something like this section had that gives you all of that reference up front that it'll keep referring to that you can see what this code might look like in a code base as opposed to just a small out of context code snippet. It is really nice having it at the top because if at any point you forget and wait, how are you doing this joins, you know exactly where to go to refresh your memory. So it is nice to have that one single point of reference. So the last section that we did on the show was also a pretty large, long, extensive chapter, and it was on active record associations. And this section felt longer, but is actually 100 words shorter. I wonder if that has to do with the extensive amount of almost API documentation that's here. It goes through every method, talks about what its options are, and there's not a whole lot of theory behind why the interface works this way. While I was reading it, I was feeling conflicted. I kept putting myself in the shoes of the person who was writing the documentation. I found it super helpful that they would do the active record syntax, and then they would provide the plain SQL. This is what it will output for the SQL. This is what will run in the database. There were a lot of moments where I was, but why? What does that do that I think would be really helpful because a lot of people learn Rails as their first language, and Rails is so friendly and accessible that they don't learn the underlying SQL. And so that seemed like a missed opportunity to me in the docs. But if I was writing this, I would feel there's no way I can write all the things and teach you all the things. But it does seem like they could link out to somewhere that will explain how a group buy works or how a select works. Or especially with the joins, it gets complicated fast. If you've never learned the difference between an inner join and a left outer join, you have no idea why you would use that active record method, why you would choose one over the other. And so I was feeling challenged about if they should include SQL basics or not in the docs. That's a balancing act that sometimes you can even see in just the way things are written. I think they are very aware when they're putting these together of how most people are going to use the guides in that they will not be reading it top to bottom. They're going to come in looking for one concept. They're going to find it, maybe copy the example and modify it, or just get the keyword that they're looking for and then go look it up in the API docs. People are parachuting in, getting their one thing and leaving. And you can see that they're aware of that by the fact that they include so much information in every single example when it's the same all the way up. But because they're including it in each one, they know someone's only going to read these three paragraphs. We have to put this in here as well. It's that balancing act of how are people using it and let's speak to our audience where they are and how much can we give that extra context. They do default more often to the utilitarian approach. 
That's such a good point, and I'm glad you brought it up. I very rarely read a document from top to bottom, so kudos to the documenters, whoever is writing these. They're great. Yeah, 100%. I know a couple of you listen, so getting that <laughs> shout out as often as we can because really appreciate the guides and the wonderful documentation that they are. Yeah, for sure. I found myself asking that as I was going through quite often, because there are so many things that are very similar, but aren't direct aliases of each other. And there wasn't enough information in a lot of these examples for me to come away knowing why might we use one method over another. So I'm pretty unclear on these specific situations where I would decide between includes preload, eager load. The only hint that's given is that eager load seems to specifically use a left outer join, but includes and preload seem the same from the way that they're presented here. I'm wondering, do you have any more context around the difference between those three methods? I don't. I was reading this guide and I got to includes and I was like, I love an includes. And in the guide, it specifically said you should use joins over includes if you're going to be doing extra stuff. Even though active record lets you specify conditions on the eager loaded associations from includes, just like joins, the recommended way is to use joins instead. So I have forever been doing quote unquote wrong thing. And I read this note and I was like, but why? I'm happy most of the time to take a this is just the framework's recommendation. But this one really bugged me because I've never seen negative effects. To your point of why would I use includes over eager loads or preload, I reached for the one that I always use because it always does the job for me. And I truly don't know why you would choose one or the other. I do think the eager load, that left outer join will give you a pretty big performance hit if your table is of any notable size. So a left outer join will load everything from one table, even if it's not represented in the other table. And inner joins will only load you that intersection. If we're thinking of a Venn diagram, it'll only load you that middle part. Whereas a left outer joins will load the entire left circle with just null values for rows that aren't represented in the other circle. So if you have a huge table, you're loading a huge number of extra records. But for the most part, we're not dealing with that. I actually don't think most people reach for eager load. Is that performance consideration mentioned here? You just kind of have to know that about left outer joins. Bringing the point home, there is an opportunity in some cases to link out to some SQL fundamentals. I think this would be a case where that could be really helpful. Not that they would have to enumerate all of this, but I do think understanding what a left outer join does, you can read these docs and go, oh, now I know why I won't choose that method, or now I know why I will choose that method. That's just the one piece that's missing. An ORM is wonderful because it abstracts the need to know all of that stuff away. You have your English methods, you know what you're doing. But every once in a while when you have that gnarly bug or that gnarly performance thing and you have to dig into it, it would be nice if the docs gave that little nice yellow warning of, 
performance may be degraded with this one, or probably a nicer way of saying that. That's a really good point, because the guides offer that kind of opportunity, whereas the API documentation wouldn't, because that is more specific technical implementation but the guides can offer that extra context. And there are probably some opportunities here in this section, maybe more than most that I've read so far, that extra information, giving a little more differentiation between some of these things that on face value are very similar. I too have mostly just used includes. If you know that it's going to cause an N plus one query, what do you do? You slap an includes on there. Yes, exactly. My current project uses something, and I'm curious if you've encountered this or use it yourself. It was introduced in Rails 6.1, the strict loading mode. What that will do is detect if you are doing something that is going to cause extra queries and it will error. And you have to go back and fix the original call for data to get rid of the n plus one. Still, even in that more intentional space, I'm just putting an includes in there whenever it's yelling at me. I love that. I have not used the strict loading, or if I have, it's been a secret to me and I didn't know. But that sounds amazing, because what was that gem that we would always install bullet? I haven't used it, but this strict loading sounds amazing because it sounds like I don't need an extra gem now. I have some safety in my framework to prevent me from putting N plus ones everywhere that then I have to manually go find and fix. There's a real almost Gartner's hype cycle chart of my relationship with strict loading because at first it sounds incredible and it's going to save so much performance and just all of these things that I might not even notice and I'm accidentally doing, it's going to catch for me. But then you realize just how often in a Rails app you make these queries that are really unperformant just accidentally. And I guess that's why it's there. It becomes this real frustrating impediment for a while because it's just yelling at you all the time. And you're thinking to yourself, how do I load this? This was queried for two models ago. Now I've got to add this thing into it. Do I go all the way back? And it really just makes you think more intentionally. And until you get those patterns in your head, it's just super frustrating. But eventually breaks through. You come into the light and you're getting all of that benefit. I love this. And now I'm very tempted to go to work tomorrow and turn it on and see what happens. I mean, I am a platform engineer now, so performance is my bread and butter. I feel like I can turn it on and just say performance and I'll be able to get away with it. It sounds fun. Well, it will probably be something like turning it on, running the test suite and seeing how many thousands of tests fail. Well, that too. I think you sold me. Even with you saying that it's a little bit of an uphill battle, I think I'm sold. It's been really great for that extra step of intention that it causes. At first it was, oh, how do I do the thing that makes this shut up? But then it became, do I actually need to query this? How can I do this in a more efficient way? It's been fantastic. The other thing about includes, I will forever remember this because an early job interview right out of boot camp, they asked the entry level couple of Rails questions. And I guarantee that the one that I lost the job on was not remembering the name of the method to help N plus one queries. I could tell from the interviewer's face that was the one that doomed me. So after I went and looked it up, I will forever remember to use includes to do that specific thing. Yeah, that's a terrible interview question. I'm glad it made it stick in your head, but 
Oh boy. Yeah, that's a tough break. What are some other things that even having worked with Active Record for all this time that you found out for the first time going through this? The one that I read and I feel like, oh my God, I should have known that. And nope, that I learned that today and I will remember is how Active Record treats their not conditions. If a query has a condition with non-nil values on a nullable column and you make a not query on it, the records that have nil values won't be returned. So let's say there's a column for country and it's nullable. So you can have US, you can have Scotland, you can have France, or you can have nil and you say not the US, anyone who has nil won't be returned. I don't think I've ever realized that's how that behaves. So I feel very lucky up till this point that hopefully that means I haven't gotten bitten by it. But yeah, blew my mind. That really stood out for me too. When I read it, I had to go into the Rails console and like try it out a little bit. Wait, is that actually how it works? They wouldn't put it in there if it's not how it works. But oh my god, that's how that actually works. And do you think that's how it should work? Because I could definitely see value. Well, obviously there's value in it. That's how it works. They made that choice and they are much smarter than I'm. But I don't know if that is like the obvious way or the way that people would assume it was like i don't know if it filter out the nils or not i definitely agree the level of shock that i had in learning that and then thinking about it it is counterintuitive and that very much could be a gotcha or like you say maybe you've been lucky and it hasn't bitten you or maybe we've both just been leaving time bombs in code bases all throughout our career i will just apologize to anyone who's had to inherit (laughs) that But speaking of things that are counterintuitive, can I just share one that bites me on every project, every, it always burns me, is active records meth. The SQL equivalent is group, but then these group I does nothing with SQL and it like is just on an enumerable and returns a hash. always mess them up and i never figure it out until i have a failing spec because in my head active record is such a good one-to-one with soul that i always grab the group by when i just the group i want the actual operation funny story there is that it wasn't i think until i had read your notes in our shared document that group by is a ruby method and not an active record method because i swear i had just tried something out in the console and used group by and thought oh i just used it wrong (laughs) yes every single time and i love i love a group i love a group by which is why i reach for them so much which is also why i get burned by them so much i assume group by was already taken by ruby and they didn't want to overload it and cause a whole bunch of side effects in existing apps that would be my one little if i could be a rails time traveler i would go back and change that I think that's probably similar to includes because includes has the S on it. And if you're thinking through the sort of sentence structure of a query, includes doesn't really make as much sense as book include author. 
I never thought about that one, but yeah, that makes perfect sense. Speaking of closeness that a lot of the query methods have with their SQL partners, something that I didn't use very often in Active Record and saw the connection as I was going through this is the Active Record select method. That had, to me, a very interesting behavior that at first glance, I didn't immediately get filled with a lot of ideas of how I would go about using this because rather than returning an Active Record object that has all of its attributes populated, you can select specific fields or attributes off of your table, and it will give you back model objects with the rest of the attributes missing. It seemed very strange to me that it was different than something like luck, where you would just get those values back that you would get the full active record object and half of it would be broken. Valid, save, all of these different things just wouldn't work the way that you'd expect. I have used select. And when we're thinking about performance and we're thinking about the golden rule of keep things a relation for as long as possible, that's what has made me reach for select in some cases over pluck. I think we should talk about pluck because I didn't realize until reading the guide how much nuance there was to that little method. What select gets you is full control over when you want to execute the query and when you want to load it into memory. So if you are doing big iterative bulk operations, we had this bug and it affected 40,000 customers and so now I have to go backfill missing data. You're doing a lookup from another table so you can run your query, select just the columns that you need for the backfill to go fill it in in this other location. That's when I would use a select because I want to be able to pass this relation all over my code, control exactly when to execute it, and then know that I am loading in memory the smallest amount possible because I'm doing this bulk operation. I'm loving hearing you talk about this philosophy of keeping things a relation for as long as possible, because it's not something that I've thought a whole lot about. Either just I haven't been in the situation where that was going to make enough of a difference to really have an impact to bring it to cross that threshold that I'm consciously thinking about it, or I've just been writing bad code everywhere. They're equally likely. If we go back to thinking about Rails is so friendly and accessible, so you don't have to learn SQL to learn how it works. I think a piece that sometimes gets missed is that in the database is the fastest place to slice apart and do some of these data operations, and that in memory is actually slower. And so keeping it a relation means you get to take advantage of active records power to keep doing that method chaining and chaining on all the things that you want to have happen in the database where it's as fast as possible. I actually started a new job in April, and the very first bug that I fixed was related to everything that we're talking about, where we had a customer who had 1.2 million records associated with them in the database, and they wanted to look at a report, and it kept timing out. And it was because we queried, we executed the query, loaded it into memory, and then tried to do a group by, not the SQL one, but the regular one in memory. And so we exceeded the 30-second timeout. But once I changed it to a group on the relation in the database, it became 
a half a second query. That really is just that piece of if you didn't learn SQL, you just missed the part of that databases are really powerful and they are really fast. So if you keep it a relation, you keep it in the database as long as you can. I love that. Something that I find myself butting heads with other Rails developers a lot of the time because a Rails way to do things is to add more columns on a table. And my first instinct when doing data modeling is to make relationships. Mm -hmm. That's what the database is good at. Let's have the database do the thing that it's good at rather than bringing things into Ruby and having Ruby perform things on them that could just be a single query. I agree wholeheartedly with you. So if you need backup on that, let me know. (laughs) I think the thing that makes it difficult is it's so much more conceptual overhead to think about associations and relationships as opposed to dot attribute and getting a value back. I can see both sides of it. I just have my my way that I would like to go about it. And not every application is GitHub or Shopify and needs those little iotas of performance. That's a really good point, too. There is something to be said for readability and limiting cognitive overload. They mentioned readability somewhere. Oh, I think one of the things that stood out to me is in talking about conditions, namely the where method, there's a lot of detail about using a string as your condition rather than a hash or an array. I've seen the question mark to have your safer from SQL injection method calls. One I didn't know that you could do is have named placeholder conditions. You would, instead of typing just a question mark, you'd have what looks like a symbol and you pass it a hash. So you can basically have keyword arguments to this string condition clause. I didn't know that that existed. I rarely use string conditions like that, but being able to name something is so great. It's so powerful. And the next time that I have to drop into that string condition level, even if it's just one thing, I will probably name it because it's going to be so much easier to grok for the next person who comes along. And that next person could be me in two weeks. It's such a nice quality of life feature, especially given that if you are used to using Active Record, you see that string syntax so rarely that the minute there are three question marks, I'm like, wait a minute, what, where, what's going where? It's so nice. I really appreciate when past developers take advantage of that feature. I really loved seeing this is not as a Rails developer or anything, but this is as someone doing this podcast. I really loved seeing optimistic locking coming up because I think that's the first time that we've come back around to something Mina and I read previously that had a click more through this link to learn about this. And we got to the page that you would get to through that click more. So that just made me happy. That's awesome. I will be on honest, I read the optimistic locking like two or three times and I've gotten this far without it. I think it's okay if I don't understand it right now. So maybe what I need to do is go listen to your previous episode and then it'll all come together for me. As if we haven't been talking about joins the whole time because we're talking about relational databases and cell joins. But in section 12, where they're talking about joins and these other concepts, very helpful to me was it would follow up a lot of the Rails code examples, then the SQL example with or in English and just give a phrase. 
because looking at the SQL and looking at that method call didn't help me to understand it. But having that natural language explanation of what this will do allowed me to connect to those concepts a lot easier than if it were just code. I agree with that, especially as the joins got more complicated and they were doing the nested associations. Mm. I'm I'm very comfy with SQL and I was like, nope. I would go back to look at the diagram up top. So confused. The English made it. So it was like, okay, the added benefit of putting it in English, it's nice because it gives an example of how to translate a real world requirement into an active record query. What do you want to come out of the database? And I really appreciated that. That was a great little learning nugget all right there in three lines of text. That's a really great point. That's something that we're doing all the time is taking these requirements that are written completely divorced from technical and implementation context and understanding, turning it into something technical. And so seeing it come out the other way, making those connections, that's just another level of why those are great to see in there. How do you feel about scopes? I love a scope. I love a scope too. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well, but I think in the question of do you make this a class method or do you make it a scope, if it's some kind of a query, I will pretty much always go for scope. There's something to someone being able to open a model file and see all of the scopes there as these are sets of this concept that our system cares about. That it might be important to think about this object in these kind of relations. There's something just really powerful about having them, hopefully they're all in one place in a file. It's another one of those readability benefits that might be no different to the machine, but make a big deal to the people. I use scopes for the same reason. They communicate a lot of intent. A class method, because Ruby is an object-oriented language, class methods. I wouldn't go so far as to say they are a code smell, but they do perk up my ears a little bit. And I don't get a sense for how widely is this used? Was this here for just that one service class or that one background job that needed it? Or is this a thing that is integral to the application? A scope clearly communicates, this is important, we use this a lot, it's reusable, it's chainable. You get some extra shorthand when you put the word scope there. I had a similar conversation with a coworker today, and I have an entire episode of The Bike Shed that I went on, and Joelle Canville and I talked about how we don't really like class methods in Ruby, and maybe they're awkward to use for a reason. I also, do you ever, with a scope, make a scope and then use it in an association so that you can get the benefits of Rails eager loading? Let's say you want to get your list of blog posts. Some blog posts are deleted. So on the blog post class, you can make an active scope where active is true or where deleted is false. And then on the user class, you can make an association called active posts that is your active blog post that uses the active scope. You just pass it in there and Rails does its magic and it knows when you put active that it's chaining it on your posts association. But then the power comes in with your includes. Not only do you avoid N plus ones, you're eager loading only the active ones. And it becomes really, really powerful when you bring scopes and associations together. 
that is one of the reasons that I'm all in on scopes, because even if I don't need it for an association right now, I might at some point, and then it unlocks a big performance win. That's one of my favorite ways to use a scope. There have been so many times where I have done something that maybe was a little less straightforward because it would lean into active record. So you get all of those things that whether it's chaining or this kind of interoperability and maybe taking that one extra step to make sure that you're keeping it inside active records wheelhouse, I think is always worth it. I would have to open up the doc for Pluck because I read it and it does so much, so much nuance to this method. I really liked that they showed how you can use a select with a map to get the same outcome. They go into a little bit more detail where they talk about how Pluck converts it directly into an array so you're not getting the active record object. Mm. It actually puts less stuff in memory. You're not loading up the model and keeping the model mostly empty, but you sacrifice the chain ability. You don't have a relation. There are some times where it would be nice to be able to say, I have a book record, even though you only need three columns on it reading everything about pluck there was so much more there than i thought as much as i use it in the console to just give me those ids to know that it was doing way more under the hood was interesting it's a plucky little section it's got a lot in there <laughs> for the entire document up until this point i was a little unsure about why you might want to use select which gives you this object that you can't do a whole lot of things with that you might expect to be able to do with an active record object but buried here in the documentation of pluck where it says it makes it possible to replace code like and then it does a select and a map it is showing why you might want select. Even in this really contrived small example, it's saying that you should just use pluck, but it's giving a demonstration of why you'd want to select a few columns and then operate on those objects. I thought that was just really interesting that they gave select so straightforward in the select section, but then showed it off a little bit while it was talking about, hey, don't use it. I love this page, and it really sets the bar for how to make really accessible, informative documentation. It is interesting to go through this exercise and realize how hard it is to write docs. And just how hard it is to know everything about a framework. There's just no way to know this entire surface area. But having touched on a few of these ideas, I feel like in two years when I do need this one specific thing, I've seen it before. And so I feel a lot more equipped to know where to go to look up a thing that I now know exists. But the one thing I was hoping to walk away from this page in particular is that darn error message that I'm sure we've all run into when trying to use group. The one about it has to be. Yeah, in the group by clause. In the clause, yeah. Something about an aggregate. And I was kind of hoping that that would be a little clearer after this, but it looks like my princess is in another castle and I'll have to go learn that somewhere else. If it makes you feel any better, I had to take a whole college course on like SQL fundamentals, and I still can't make a SQL query that doesn't have that error. So you might just never find her. She might just stay in that castle forever, because she definitely has for me. Well, I hope she's got a nice view at least. <laughs> Should we wrap up? Yeah, I think so. I'm good. Cool.
So for next episode, we are saying so long to Active Record and reading Active Model Basics in the Ruby on Rails guides. If you have feedback or constructive compliments, you can be reached on Twitter at underscore tightly coupled and on Mastodon at tightly coupled at ruby.social or email us at tightlycoupled.dev at gmail.com. Mercedes, how can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Mastodon. I'm at Mercedes Codes at Mastodon.world. You can also contact me on my website. It's MercedesBernard.com. Or if you want to get in touch on LinkedIn, I am very responsive there. So whatever works. Nice. We'll have all of those linked in the show notes as well, which you can find in your podcast player or tightlycoupled.dev. Bye. Bye. I don't know if I'm supposed to say bye. Yeah, yeah you can. That's the only way I can remember. I have to like think through it. I want to talk about dessert. Is there one S or two S? <laughs> Do I want more of it? Yes. Then it's a dessert. Okay. I'm writing a query. Does this need an S? It does. Okay, good. It's that same kind of mental arithmetic. Whatever makes it easier to remember.